there's actually a book that's tied to this topic that I had planned to write 30 years ago. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. My name is Kim O'Hara. I'm an intuitive book coach at A Story Inside, and I'm interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life who have a story to tell. Do they have a book in them? Stick around and find out. Stephanie Zong is a brand storyteller and social justice advocate. Her company, Dear Ann Media, helps do-good companies grow their tribes with storytelling. Back in the day before Twitter, her blog, Fabulously Green, reached 100,000 readers a month. Did I say before Twitter? My desire to talk today with Stephanie stemmed from a shocking conversation we had recently about her fear in COVID-19 of going outside as a Chinese-American woman. As her friend, I had no idea she was going through this. And then I started to dig more into her essays and pieces of the past, and I saw a theme. Thanks, Stephanie, for coming on the show today. Kim, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. You are a beautiful writer, and I appreciate your style of storytelling, which lies between journalism and essayist. And would you say that's true about you as a writer? No, no one's ever said that before, and I think it's really spot on, Kim. I was trained in writing in journalism and in academic writing, but then when it came to writing for myself about the truth, which I know is something that you really glide, guide your clients through, I had a hard time getting to it originally through essay, and I ended up discovering that if I um, you know, just wrote more journals, stream of consciousness, or poetry, I could unearth what was really emotionally true for me, and then take that and put it into essays and writing. And I love how you've even dabbled in the haiku as well. Yeah, yeah, I did. And that was really interesting, because I never saw myself as a poet. Um, I was always comfortable with just writing prose. And then there was a time in my life when I was working too much and having no space for creativity and my soul was dying a little bit as a result. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I committed, yeah, I committed to writing one haiku a day. I would basically have five or 10 minutes of my lunch hour. And I started doing that. I ended up writing maybe around 370 plus haiku. And it was really interesting because I built an, a different relationship to words and to emotions through that process. I shared a lot of them on Instagram to just get over any perfectionism about it. And that's really, I think, when my writing became honest. I love that. And you are honest and you're not scared at all to go to the source of like discrimination and horror. And I know you've written about Japanese internment camps, and you had an interview with a former neo-Nazi. Tell me how you're attracted to your subjects. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so for listeners out there who are curious, because she just dropped a big word bomb, neo, former neo-Nazi, um, I'm attracted to people who are deeply courageous. And Angela King, who was the former neo-Nazi I interviewed, 
was one of these people. And I had, I had, um, I had just happened to be talking to a client of mine who had mentioned working with former neo-Nazis who are now dedicated to helping people get out of the movement. And I just wanted to know more about her. And so she was someone who um, basically her, um, her racism landed her in a federal prison in Florida. And she had one surprising moment with another prisoner who asked her to play cards who was Jamaican. And she was so disarmed by this woman's kindness that she started playing cards. And over time, she, you know, all of her realizations about racism uh, and hate crimes that she had done, she realized all of it was false. And she had to turn her back on all of her relationships, her family, that community, and start completely fresh, to be honest with herself. And so I'm always interested in people. I mean, that's a really extreme case, Kim, right? We don't meet people like Angela King every day. Not and often. she started a non, not, not ever, you know, and I think that's about the, the most radical, courageous step. Um, I'm in awe of her. So whenever I come across people who are making courageous moves that are for themselves, um, small, medium, large, I'm always asking questions and wanting to learn more. So you're this advocate who is interested in people turning themselves around. And yet here we are in a time in the world where as a Chinese American woman, you don't feel safe going outside unless you're with basically your Caucasian male husband. And, you know, tell me what feeds this fear. I mean, you seem like a very courageous person, but like what, 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 what feeds this? Is it the media? What's going on for you? It's, it's real things that are happening right now. Um, About a hundred attacks are happening a day for the last two months against um, either Chinese Americans or people who are being mistaken as Chinese Americans. And so I have an essay that's coming out next week. And um, there are a lot of reports. There was a a family who was stabbed in a Sam's Club um, Mm. by someone who admit, and we're talking a six-year-old Kim and a two-year-old were stabbed and they're in critical condition in Midland, Texas. Horrible. Yeah. I've had friends of friends who've been hospitalized for being beaten. Um, Friends of friends who are women like me who are, you know, jogging in their park and they get cans and bottles thrown at them. The ignorance. Right. And this is and and what I would say is um, I've studied, you know, in my life, you know, I studied um, American history and Asian American history. And this is not anything new. So when COVID first came out and, um, you know, our president started calling it the Chinese virus, I had already started self-quarantining two weeks before it was mandatory. I had a hunch that this was going to happen because it happened when I was a teenager in the 80s. So I had a very visceral response. And then when I started getting information, um, if you Google it, you'll see there's lots and lots of articles out there, but by and large, um, it's not really predominantly shown in the media. So to your point, Kim, like a lot of people don't know about it, but as of now, there's at least 1600, um, assaults that have happened. Since and ha- 
And have you reached out to other Chinese American women about it? Or do you find there's a lack of support circles? I've reached out to some of my own friends who are Chinese American, and there are a few who work squarely in this space and are really actively involved in some of the um, advocacy work that's going on um, with civil rights organizations. There's a hashtag Corona Racism on Twitter that Mm. people can follow. There was an official website that was created um, because infrastructure wise, you know, we've never you know, there's always been a lack of resources. So now there's actually a website that's up and that's, that's doing all the data reporting right now. And even the FBI had identified maybe a month or two ago that they anticipated that there would be this spike in hate crime against Asian Americans because of the economy and because of this virus. Wow. Well, you know, I think you should write a book about that and, and this whole, I mean, I, you, you've done so much work in this. And you've also... <laughs> You were raised in a household where there was verbal violence, which I feel is a form of discrimination. Like I think your, you know, parents mm-hmm. are discriminating against their own children, and so you're, you're a st- maybe that contributed to you being the student of violent discrimination as a writer. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Tell me what your process is when you think about that. Kim, I've thought about. Um, there's actually a book that's tied to this topic that I had planned to write 30 years ago that has been resurfacing for me that I am, I'm just checking in with myself um, how much I want to write it. And it was a book about um, these, the hidden intersections between Asian American communities and African American communities in the U S and this covers things from our history, um, politics, art and music, but really it's so important we know it now because a lot of the systemic racism that, you know, is tied into things um, with the Black community, we don't even know, you know, that the Chinese have been involved. For example, after the Civil War, you know, after the Civil War ended and slaves were freed and many of them migrated north, or they refused to work for piddly wages from the plantation workers. Guess who the plantation workers actively recruited to fill those jobs? Chinese, Chinese Americans. People. Yeah. Yep. They pulled the people from the railroads. Um, they imported people from Cuba because there were Chinese workers there that were working on the sugar plantations alongside slaves and afterwards that were responsible for why economically Cuba was doing so good back then. And so you can find like photos, you know, archive photos of advertisements they did. And actually it, like Congress had to approve um, some legislation. There was a lot of battles over whether or not they were even allowed to bring in these Chinese people. And it was all over this question of whether or not it was, quote, voluntary or not. And so, yeah, that's one example. But there's a lot of other examples that I've, you know, I've known about um, because I was studying it in grad school. And I really felt like if we really understood, not just between Blacks and Asians, but that if we understood exactly how intertwined we all are as Americans, and there's a lot of history we don't know that we would probably be able to build a lot more unity and solidarity around 
issues that really matter that can help all of us lift up. But the problem is we don't know our history and we don't understand each other as people. Well, I agree with that. Absolutely. We're such a young country. You know, um, if you look at the rest of the world, uh, there's, there's so much more to to, to discover, right, as we're playing yeah. some of these scenarios out here in real time. I want to go back to the the violence, because now you've got me thinking about another track. Um, here we go. <laughs> off I go on another track, unscripted. But, Let's do it. And, that's, mm-hmm. and that is the, 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 eco, the, the socioeconomics of, you know, you grew up in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, a largely Black, poor community uh, in areas. Uh, and, and violence in homes as well. Um, do you think that that's something that also puts you at a disadvantage along with, you know, African-Americans in terms of the discrimination, like, like not having that leg up, which sounds like it comes from wait, what you were describing in slavery and, and, way back, you know, in that track? Do you think that that's still playing itself out now? I definitely think that in our country, one of the things that we're not fully aware of or naming yet is that the way we, the way racism works in our country, like for those that say hold the power, right? The best way that they sustain power is making sure that all the different marginalized groups are pitted against each other. So a lot of the history, you know, like the example we just talked about with, um, mm-hmm. you know, exploiting Chinese people um, for, you know, when you can't have slave labor. And then later, you know, um, having treating Asians as a model minority and then basically implying to people who have black and brown skin, oh, if you just worked as hard as the Asians do. There, you know, you would be able to succeed as well. And it creates a lot of animosity and, you know, between communities because, um, you know, for folks, they might feel like if there's only one seat at the table for one group of people, right, you might, yes. you might cloy against each other. And so there's a lot of our history and our storytelling about our history and a lot of storytelling around policies that are made that really is sneaky that way that it creates a lot of this person-on-person kind of stuff Mm -hmm. so that it makes it so much harder for people to be able to come together and really call it out and say, look, you know, everyone deserves an equal opportunity. Um, In Philadelphia, I would say, you know, Philadelphia was, it is, it does have a, um, I mean, for a Northern city, it has a pretty large um, African-American population but like many cities historically, um, things got segregated very quickly. So I, I grew up in a relatively mixed neighborhood up until the age of five. And then after that, I went to school in the suburbs in a predominantly white Catholic, Irish Catholic community hmm. and was trying to figure out my own identity there, you know, as maybe one of four people of color in the entire school. Wow. And yeah, so I think discrimination and identity, and I'm still unpacking it, but what you said, Kim, about um, growing up in a home where there is, you know, verbal, verbal violence, or, you know, a father, I know, I know that my dad 
had struggles, um, it's not an excuse for, you know, how he talks to his children. Right. Right. But I'm a, what I, yeah, but what I was really, really aware of, um, at an early age was that, um, the kind of hurt and shame I was feeling from that. And my dad, he struggled with alcoholism. So it was all sort of intertwined together. Right. And then it's even intertwined into his identity and his immigration. And he came from a war torn country. So there was a lot of demons he was dealing with that I couldn't understand as a little girl. But what I knew as a little girl was how terrified I felt, how I would stand, you know, when he, you never knew what would set him off. You could say, are you going to, are you getting a haircut? And you'd get, you know, ripped to pieces about, or, you know, you forgot a dish or something and that, you know, forgot to put that in the dishwasher or whatever it is. It was like, I was always on eggshells and sometimes he could be fun. I mean, a lot of times he could be fun and goofy or he could just totally ignore you or he's gonna, you know, rage on you. You just didn't know what you were going to get. But what I understood, and I think I gravitated really early on to was that feeling of, I don't want anyone to ever feel the way I feel. Mm-hmm. in these moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, like, to your point, I, I became really interested in things like the Holocaust. I became really interested when I read Anne Frank's diary as a 12 year old, you know, or watching Roots on TV and seeing what slavery was like. So anytime that I'm watching people be hurt for no reason that they deserve to be hurt, I would find myself aligning and feeling, you know what I mean? And just mm-hmm. kind of the, those were a lot of this and how they overcome it. And that those are the kinds of stories that I think helped me to survive as a kid. And ones that I continue to like, you know, I mean, I appreciate that you said that I'm a courageous person and I think I'm somebody who I call myself a courageous little chicken because <laughs> we, we at the core, at the core, Kim, I am a chicken who has learned how to um, use spiritual tools and reframing my own story and connecting to other people who have stories that transcend the things that they have had to struggle with. That's what helps me find that courage, you know? Um, So whether it's me working with clients to help them unearth their story um, or, you know, in the brand storytelling work I do around social justice issues and things like that, or it's like the people I gravitate to, right? I get stronger by what, by reading somebody else's story, hearing somebody else's story, and then me taking the baby step forward, like writing this essay, which was the hardest thing I've ever had to write, Kim. And I wanted to quit a thousand times, you know, before I, I well, it's, it last week. It's very potent. I mean, it's very, it's very potent. And I do hope, I do hope that this issue that you're dealing with, I, you know, on behalf, I'd like to say on behalf of all of the American people, I am, I apologize, but you Mm. are part of the American people. And so, you know, you are one with all of us and, you know, we're all in this collective discrimination, whether we realize it or not, there's these micro discriminations going on about, who wears masks, yeah. who doesn't, you're killing people. If you don't wear a mask, you're not being safe. You know, we're, there's all sorts of micro discriminations that are going on. 
it's sort of an undercurrent. And I feel like you speaking out about what you're experiencing can help us shore up and make sure that we don't go down that slippery slope of doing it in a lot of different directions as we come out of this experience, you know, that we've, we've never had before. I've, I've absolutely loved having this conversation with you. You've shed some incredible light on history and on your own personal experience. And I, I appreciate you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Kim. I appreciate it too. And I love the work that you do and even just piecing together some themes for me today when we were chatting. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about how to write a book, check us out at a storyinside.com. <laughs>